I'm Vicky Carter and you're listening to the Let's Go Kick-Ass Today podcast, season two, episode eight. Every month I interview incredible people from the fields of music, adventure and culture. And this month for International Women's Month, it's all about women. Hell yes! I interview breakfast presenter, journalist and all-round wonder woman, Sonia Watson. You, you've got to be happy with who you are and try not to pretend, even though there's pressures to change sometimes, try not to change who you are. Adventurer, author, cyclist and environmentalist Kate Rules. Cycling from Colombia to Cape Horn, as you said, while trying to unpack the biodiversity story and why it's so important and what's, what's positive being done and what can we learn from that back here. And actress, writer, comedian and activist Alexis Strum. And I'm in the wings, you know, not noticeably pregnant at that point, about to go on stage and just thinking, oh my God, I, I, there's like an ethical thing here. I'm not sure I can actually go on. I interview breakfast presenter, journalist and all-round Wonder Woman, Sonia Watson. She tells me about her journey of how she got to be where she is now, being a continuity announcer on TV to millions of people, the importance of being authentic and any advice for you if you want to break into radio. I'll be honest with you. This is the least prepared of an interview I've ever, ever, ever done before because I'm not, I'm not prepared. <laughs> I think it would be fine. I think on the one hand, I know you so well, you know, but on the other, I really don't, you know, I know about your kids. I know about your partner. I know like how much you love coffee and Prosecco, <laughs> you know, what stories you love. But apart from that, like, I don't know anything else about your background apart from, you know, you once were a massive raver and get yourself into situations that are <laughs> very similar to mine <laughs> so, um, and as i'm interviewing you for the music section because i think broadcasting and the world of broadcasting and media is so related to that industry i mean tell me about how it all began when it all started because you've also worked for not only bbc essex obviously co-host the benson breakfast show but also you know a part of the news team you were also presenting on the weekends you've worked for heart as well in their news editor you've been a voiceover like there's so many different elements that bring you to this very moment where we've crossed paths it was kind of a weird way i think that it all started for me i've always had quite a passion for telling stories i think um even when i was sort of eight or nine i remember my parents got a camcorder and it's this wacky great camcorder that my dad used to take with us when we went away on holiday mostly in in the uk mostly places like cornwall and he'd film the places we went on the day trips and I would present to the camera and do a little piece to camera to say where we were and what we were doing during the day and that was when I was really quite little and then as I went into my teenage years a friend who used to live down the road from me and I we just used to sit in our bedrooms with a cassette player and record pretend radio shows and pretend to be radio presenters and we'd pretend to do American shows putting on American accents and doing radio, like, almost like radio plays and all sorts of crazy stuff, just letting our imagination run wild. So it's always something I've been really, really interested in, just sort of telling stories, really, I suppose, and also talking. <laughs> I like talking. Um, yeah. I really, I really love talking. Um, and you know me pretty well through working together anyway. I really love being around people. And as a side note, I think that's why this last year has been really challenging for me, because my personality, probably quite like you, Vicky, is... I like, I'm a bit of a social butterfly. I like to be around people, hear their stories and, and talk and have a bit of fun. So it's always been a passion in terms of what I like and my personality. And then when I did my sort of English and media degree, I kind of fell into doing a bit of work experience at one of our local radio stations. And I just offered myself up and said, do you want me to come in and do some stuff for free? And they said, yes. And that went on for quite a few weeks. They got an extra pair of hands and didn't cost them a penny. And I got a load of experience in a newsroom and got to do some on-air stuff from quite an early point in, in my career. And then that led to being able to apply for jobs and having that demo tape and, and being able to say, I know what it's like in a newsroom. I haven't just studied it. I've actually been in it. And that's how it all kind of started. It was, I, I, I don't know whether it was fate, but it just seemed to all weirdly fall into place and just fit with something I'd kind of always been doing even from a young age really I guess. 
That's so interesting because that's exactly what I did when I was young. My dad's got a video of me outside Wataran in Bangkok in Thailand going, hi, I'm Vicky and I'm outside Wataran. You know, like, oh, I'm so ridiculous. Um, so you've obviously highlighted, you know, how key the experience is being in the newsroom after having a qualification. Do you think for many people that sets it apart, being able to actually say, look, I've physically been in the newsroom, the practical experience rather than having the qualification or just do both go hand in hand? I suppose they both go hand in hand to a point, but I would always say, really, the most that you learn is when you're actually doing doing the job. And, you know, you can learn all the legal stuff and you can learn about how to write, theoretically, write a good news story. And that gives you a sort of good grounding. It stands you in good stead. But really, the bulk of what you learn is when you're in the newsroom, because all of a sudden you're then having to deal with asking difficult questions sometimes dealing with grieving relatives how to approach them uh, dealing with deadlines and the reality of deadlines and then having to put things together and technology failing and all of those sorts of things which happen to you on the on a daily basis being able to cope in a crisis as well because sometimes as you well know you know we can be this kind of complete calm on air but behind the scenes the amount of fretting that's going on because phone numbers aren't working, technology's failing, we're running out of time, you know, there's so many things going on. And I don't think you really get the confidence to be able to cope with all of that until you're actually doing it. There's no substitute for real experience, I don't think. I think you're incredibly talented at what you do because like you've highlighted then, you know, you can switch dramatically. You'll be holding like people to account and finding out the real information. And then you'll do a massive gear change to, you know, really hearing an emotional story that a local radio listener has called up wanting to connect and sharing. And then you'll next stage, you know, it'll be a bit of banter and you'll be something kind of innuendo that you're trying to hold back from laughing. <laughs> <laughs> which is which is pretty talented you know to be able to adjust so well uh, so obviously now your present time is in local radio you've also worked in commercial radio what were those and voiceovers what were those experiences like I mean pretty the same really commercial radio is pretty similar to BBC local radio you just get less time uh, to, to sort of get your points across everything has to be much tighter much shorter in terms of how it's written and edited and delivered so it kind of has to sound a little bit more pacey I suppose uh, local radio you've got in BBC wise you've got more time to do stuff in a little bit more depth which is one of the things I really like about it actually the fact that you don't have as much time constraints um, TV voiceover was totally different altogether it was just sitting in a broom cupboard watching telly and getting paid for it if I, you know, I'll be honest with you, it's kind of like a dream job and I absolutely loved it. And I have to say, the day I, the day I left, and it was my decision to leave, um, but the day I left, I cried because it was just such a brilliant job and such a great bunch of people. Um, but it was just the, the way it was being done was changing and they were moving to a different part of London, which I realistically couldn't commute to. And mm. so I sort of ended up getting back into news. But continuity was, was a great, a great job to do. It's a lot of fun and basically sitting watching telly and getting paid for it. <laughs> That's so great. Is there any moments where you thought, oh my gosh, I really want to say that. Should I say it? Should I get away with it? Because some of the things that people say, they nailed it so well. It's being so quick and responsive and coming back with like quick witted things, which, you know, I'm awful at with comebacks, but you know, you nail it to the T, which is obviously why you did it really well in, the, in that previous job. But were there any times where you had to bite your tongue and were like, actually, maybe this isn't suitable? Probably, <laughs> probably loads of times, probably more recently in my job now, because it's hard, isn't it? It's hard. Some of the issues are quite emotive and, and all that sort of stuff. So you're always having to, to be thinking about that as well and making sure that you're balanced in everything, in everything that you do. The stuff with TV is very, very tightly controlled because we always used to write the scripts and have to get them approved before they went to air. Um, so that was, I suppose, a little bit more regimented you'd be able to be pretty creative but it would always have to be done well in advance and then they'd have to be have to be approved but it was quite daunting to know that sometimes when you were announcing things there were you know 15 million people listening to that one link and you only had about somewhere between eight and 20 seconds to get your link in and boy if you stuffed it up you just oh no oh my gosh just, you know if you stumble over your words or something which I did do you know it's only natural now and again you, you make a little bit of a mistake I think oh well it's just it's, you know nine million 12 million people who heard that never mind <laughs> what if you start choking on air or something like 
<laughs> I'd have to style it out. Oh gosh. <laughs> wow. That's incredible. That's so cool. There's such a variety of different skills in each of those areas, each of those newsrooms. And so um, you worked in commercial, predominantly in news, and then you've kind of, you've built yourself up uh, over time in Essex. What was that journey like for you? Well, I suppose because I am from Essex, it's like coming home, really. I think I, I am fiercely passionate. You probably guessed this anyway. I'm fierce, fiercely passionate about Essex because it's where I'm from. It's where I live now. And to be honest, you know, I've thought about living other places, but I've, I've never really wanted to leave here because I think there's so much going for Essex. You've got beautiful countryside. You've got a sort of real urban feel, cosmopolitan feel, uh, so many different industries, great vibes and, and wonderful people. So being able to be back and then to be on breakfast at BBC Essex it's quite I know it sounds a bit soppy but it is quite a privilege really because you're waking up people in the county that you live in and that you you were born and brought up in I love it I can't get enough of it yeah I love how authentic you are like having a conversation in the office or now is exactly what you're like on air and I think that really shines through. And, uh, you know, some of the top dogs have commented it as well, you know, <laughs> of how Essex the station yeah. is. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing. And I think listeners, mm -hmm. listeners and audiences are smart. And they know, you know, if you, if you watch, you know, if you watch something about somebody or you're listening to a radio programme, you know if, if people are putting it on, mm. um, if, if they're sort of changing the way they are to fit a certain certain way we can all do that you know we can all perhaps be a little bit more well spoken and we can be a different way but I think the audience generally are pretty smart at figuring out that that's not you mm. so I think it's really important to to be to be you and especially when it comes to local because it's all about where you live isn't it it's, it's so much more about the place and and to sound like you're from that place and to have the same sense of humor and the same connections and the same taste as other people in that place it just makes it just sound a lot more genuine and real. Mm. And, and I don't think you should have to pretend. And, and that's a message I'm constantly trying to get through to my children, especially my daughter. You know, you, you've got to be happy with who you are and try not to pretend, even though there's pressures to change sometimes. Try not to change who you are. So true. So true. So be authentic, you know, in the workplace, at home, in all areas of your life. So how do you feel about those presenters that are like, hi, coming up, we've got so-and-so. You know, they've got a radio <laughs> voice. I don't know I quite like that I think there's a place for that and I suppose it kind of harks back maybe to the 80s and to a heyday of radio but there's a place I think there's a place for that and that's why I really love radio it's just there's so many different genres and styles aimed at so many more now than when I first started in 1999 you know I've seen like some massive changes in wow. radio since I started out but, you know, there's so, there's so many different stations and styles now. And I just really hope that as a, as a medium, it continues. And I think like the lockdown and the pandemic has actually brought a lot of people closer to things like podcasts and radio because it's that much more intimate, way more intimate than television ever could be. I think the connection when you're listening to someone but you can't see them is, is really, really special. Definitely, it creates a, a connection, as you said, especially how important it is. It's a lifeline, local radio, for, for local communities, as, as quite rightly, you know, you've um, recognised during the pandemic, I've recognised on the other side as well, on the phones, how important and integral it is for people to, to be there and be feel a part of something, because they are a part of something, and it, and it is so important. So, since 1999, what was... <laughs> The radio station. I feel old now. <laughs> that's like the start of an era. That's insane. What was um? <laughs> you yeah, don't I see, look I told it, you old. No, you don't look at it at all. Well, I can't do math that quick, so I don't know. I have to figure it out later. <laughs> um, um, so, what were newsrooms and radio stations like? Because I'm really proud to say that you know we've got a, a quite a a balanced newsroom, and we've got lots of females in management. You know, which is wonderful to see, but not every radio station is like that with females on air or even off air now let alone what it was like in 1999 when I first started working out in radio it was a, a time where you could smoke in the newsroom still wow. and people would be you know typing away at scripts and there'd be a 
a, a special printer in the corner where the national and the international news wires would come through and it would be automatically printing so it'd be constantly making this printing noise and churning out all the national and international news and you'd be on another computer typing up the local news to mix into the bulletin and people would be smoking the desks at the desks presenters would come out the studio during a track <laughs> light up a cig <laughs> it was, uh, it was just a different world uh, that yeah. was that was yeah that was 1999 um there was quite a lot because of my my initial work in radio was in commercial obviously we had the the, the on-air team the presenting team the news team and then we had the sales team um so i suppose in terms of of gender it was a lot of women in the sales team uh and it was mostly men on air there were some women on air but when i first started it was mostly men on air a lot of female news readers like me starting out and there was a bit of you know um news reader and finally, funny story at the end, a little bit of a giggle with the main male anchor. There was a bit of that. But I think there was all equally also quite a lot of people in management, females in management um, at that time as well. One of the bosses in my early commercial stations was female. I think she ran two or three. So there was already changes afoot. Um, and then as time progressed, I suppose we started seeing a, quite a lot of cuts to it and stations suddenly sharing output and rebranding so we went through went through a lot of that which was quite sad but as you know it's, it's one of those industries which which changes quite a lot as does a lot of industries actually so you just kind of have to have to roll with it I suppose but yes yeah, it's, it's really totally changed I mean the technology as well it had only just gone to digital editing when I first started just before that they were using these whacking great reel-to-reel players and using little white chalks to make the marks and if you bodged it up and cut it in the wrong place you'd ruin your soundbite <laughs> that's amazing oh my gosh so much has changed now i know wow yeah, I know. so what advice would you give to people who are starting out in the industry who are starting out in radio and obviously it's you know digitalizing there's loads of podcasts and they, i guess because as you've highlighted it is an unstable career and and it, and it can change rapidly what advice would you give to them definitely be persistent sometimes i think with anything in media with showbiz and probably other industries as well you can quite easily get a lot of knockbacks and there's a lot of other people chomping at the bit to do the same sort of job so definitely be persistent um because persistence pays off and it has done time and again with me um uh, you know don't sell yourself short as well absolutely go for it play to your strengths and don't be afraid to to sell those strengths to the max and if at first you don't succeed keep on going get a bit of experience behind you and know your product um i've interviewed quite a few people over the years when i was news editor and equally heard about people going for jobs when i wasn't news editor and the amount of people that go into an interview and don't really know the brand the business the product that they're applying for a job to be part of is quite surprising actually so always do your homework as well in you know if you if you're going to go for an interview at vogue magazine then don't say that you've never read vogue magazine just as an example i've plucked out of the air but know know your stuff i think definitely prepare and yeah just just keep on going don't give up because there are opportunities out there and, and sometimes it can feel quite daunting that oh someone else will get it and I'm, i might not have had the best university degree or i might not have gone to the best university etc actually none of that matters you've just got to look at how you can sell yourself the best bits of you and keep on going till you shine through also what i'm really excited to talk about is for international women's day which is this special is that you're a superwoman at home <laughs> you look after the kids as well like how do you do it? i don't understand i know that you you like you're psyched up on coffee in the morning and then how do you just continue on like no sleep and prosecco what's your secret how do you do it coffee coffee, <laughs> okay, coffee. always coffee <laughs> and then prosecco <laughs> and then i substitute it for prosecco after 7 p.m um i don't do you know what vicky sometimes i actually look at my life and think how do i do it all i don't know you just do you just adapt to it and um it is hard it feels like you're spinning a load of plates sometimes and some days i get to the end of the day and i think do you know what I am Superwoman because I did a really good show at work and I've done all my work stuff. I've come home, I've put the wash on, I've cooked a nice tea, the kids are happy, I've done this, I've done that, we're excellent. And you just feel like you're on cloud nine. And other days you feel like you're spinning all these plates 
and they're just crashing down around you and you're not really doing anything right which I suppose is is just normal I suppose everyone's like that whether they've got kids or not it is a very full-on life but weirdly I think if my life wasn't this full-on I don't know I don't know what I do with myself actually I'm so used to it being so busy and I'm so used to running around after the kids and you know making them a new drink and then clearing up the crafts and then doing this and doing that and then preparing for shows and then going on whatsapp to talk about the shows there can be quite a lot of guilt i think sometimes and i think this is sort of bringing it back to international women's day i think this is something that that women possibly need to to look at because we we are terrible for it where we do constantly feel quite guilty um so you might feel guilty that you are a mum and you're going to work um because sometimes people do i noticed was it holly willoughby it she had a was it her 40th birthday recently there's a bit of a backlash from some people on social media saying well, she, you know mum she's always at work um and so i think there is quite a lot of pressure on on working mums actually some people think that you shouldn't be working necessarily if you're a mum and as a working mum sometimes i feel quite guilty that perhaps i should be at home and i should be with the kids more but then I think to myself, actually, I'm showing them a really valuable life lesson too, especially for my daughter, that it's really important that you go out and carve a place for yourself in society. And if there's something you really want to do, whatever that may be, if you're really passionate about it, you should do it and you should try and find a way to make it work. And it will, there are ways to make it work. You're a role model, darling. Um, <laughs> just perhaps need to reduce the Prosecco intake ever so slightly. But yeah, yeah. Um, maybe run more, maybe do some more exercise as well. Oh, I don't know how you'd be able to fit it in with, with everything. <laughs> um last question obviously you touched on it before so um i kind of got distracted by all these other exciting things i wanted to ask you so you're from essex you love essex where is your number one spot you would recommend someone who might be a bit swayed by the stereotype so you want to smash that and say actually you know come to this spot in essex and you'll be blown away by the history or the nature or the culture or the food um and really put it on the map oh gosh you have to just pick one all right three <laughs> Oh, gosh. okay well you have got places like uh, finching field in northwest essex which is like chocolate box village it is picture perfect and it's just you know thatched buildings wonderfully painted cottages and houses it's just beautiful um, and also it's close to it's close to motorways and networks but it's so it's not massively off the beaten track but it is absolutely stunning where else would i pick closer to where i live in colchester dedham constable country it's just stunning you've got some uh, typically uh, quintessentially british pubs beautiful places which we hope we can get back to soon you've got the river where you can hire a boat and eat ice cream it's awesome and one of my favorite places to go in the whole wide world and i love going on my my jet set holidays when i can um, but one of my favourite places in the whole wide world has to be Walton on the Nays because you've got these stunning cliffs and you can do fossil hunting and it's just beautiful. You just would not think you were in Essex. Some excellent tips there from Sonia about how to get into radio and some great tourist destinations as well for Essex. You can catch her live from 6am Monday to Wednesday on BBC Essex. Next up is adventurer, author, cyclist and environmentalist Kate Rawls. She tells me how she lives her life, her cycle trips from Texas to Alaska and then from Colombia to Cape Horn all on the back of a bamboo bicycle. She also tells me about the conservation project she encountered. In our search for quality of life, we've created ways of trying to increase our quality of life that have a monstrous impact on the environment. And that impact is now becoming unsustainable. And the side effects of it are climate change, biodiversity loss, species extinction. So there are all these impacts um, that our search for quality of life are having on the environment. And we're just not going to survive them unless we really tackle them. And to tackle them, we need to recreate what we mean by having a high quality of life. And it has to be much less about consumerism, about stuff, about money, about things, and much more about having quality experiences, adventures even, and of course, positive relations with our community, with the people around us, with nature, and obviously with ourselves. 
It's obviously inspired many of your adventures. I mean, I think we'll start with with one of them. Um, so from Texas to Alaska. Yes, tell me about that. So you cycled all the way to Alaska. I mean, what was the landscapes like and the response? So the carbon cycle was really my first attempt at what I now think of as Adventure Plus, which is an, an attempt to raise my quality of life by having an amazing adventure on a bicycle in mountains, which is the thing I love to do above anything else in the world, I think. So it was an attempt to combine an adventure with a focus on an environmental issue. And in that case, it was climate change, hence the name the carbon cycle, obviously. And so, yes, I started cycling right on the border between um, Texas and Mexico and basically headed up the Rockies on roads. It wasn't an off-road route um, and ended up in Alaska. And it was just fantastic, Vicky. I mean, you can imagine starting in a desert and ending up with glaciers running down to the ocean and pretty much every landscape in between. Just fabulous, fabulous mountain scenery, desert scenery, forest scenery. I mean, I just loved it. As well as which I had to kind of um, an in to talk to all sorts of people about their views of climate change and what they thought was happening and what they thought we should do about it, which at the height of the Bush administration, as you can imagine, was a really, really interesting and sometimes mind-blowingly weird experience. Yeah, I read into your experiences and some people were, you know, were genuinely concerned for you and they said, Han, like, why don't you have a car? Where are you going? Do you need a hand? <laughs> Those kind of things, you know, no, I'm choosing to do this. But um, the, the, the landscapes are so diverse. How do you prepare for that, especially when it comes like, were you wild camping in those situations? Yeah, and I had a mix of accommodation on that trip, quite a lot of wild camping further north at... at it's actually quite hard to wild camp if you're um, in certain states in America and you're on a road bike with narrow tires and you have a lot of luggage because a lot of the wildland is, is fenced off now um, and, and trying to haul a big a bike over a fence and then pushing it on a, you know, across fields and so on when it's a narrow wheeled road bike is not entirely easy. So for some of the trip I was using designated campsites, um, which are great and occasionally cheap motels, um, but that was quite occasional because I was on quite a budget. Um, and then further north, it became easier to wild camp. And that's that's my favourite um, form of accommodation on a bike trip, really, because you really feel that you're much more in nature. You've been out on your bike all day and then you go to sleep in your tent and you can hear birds and when you wake up in the morning and stars when you come out for a pee in the night. And you just really feel more more in the environment rather than just passing through it. Definitely. And I think that links with your message as well, what you're aiming to do. So from the carbon cycle, then you stepped, you know, even further and you did the, the life cycle. So you cycled yeah, all the way yeah. from Colombia to Cape Horn. Um, tell me a bit more about the inspiration behind that. Did you think, OK, I need to do something bigger to get the message out? Was that the main aim? It was a bit of that. It, it, it was a kind of combination of the things that I mentioned were in terms of the carbon cycle. I wanted some time out. Uh, I wanted to get, I had been uh, working in a university for 10 years. I really wanted to be back on the road, back on my bike, back in some big mountains. I also wanted to tell another environmental story and I wanted it to be longer just to be away for, lo for longer and I wanted the mountains to be bigger. <laughs> and then I had begun to learn um, more and more about the ways in which biodiversity loss presents as big a challenge to us as people as climate change does. But at that point, I really wasn't hearing anybody talking about it. So the press weren't really covering it. It wasn't in the media, um, even as much as it is now, thanks to David Attenborough. And so I thought, well, gosh, you know, I've always been an animal kid, always loved wildlife. I've always been drawn to other species. This has got to be my issue. So I did some research around the topic and my goodness, it's, it is important. It's a really crucial story to be telling. And so those things came together. I quit my job, as you do, and, um, and went for it. Um, luckily, I have a really supportive partner and that was, that was part of the piece. But nevertheless, yeah, I quit my job and I just kind of leapt into this this slightly crazy ambition of cycling from Colombia to Cape Horn as you said while trying to unpack the biodiversity story and why it's so important and what's what's positive being done and what can we learn from that back here. I love how you said take a break whilst most people take a break is two weeks you know to a resort <laughs> and they stay at home whilst you're like no I'm gonna quit my job go to the other side of the world away from my partner and cycle through these massive mountains what was the landscapes like changing from there obviously they're rich and diverse of, of wildlife which must have been incredible to see 
Yeah, I mean, again, you've got this amazing um, diversity of landscapes. So at one point I was on the Caribbean coastline and you can imagine you know, turquoise, turquoise sea, white beaches, palm trees even, you know, all the classic Caribbean sort of stereotypes and utterly beautiful. And then you come inland for a bit and it's really lush and really hot and there's fruit everywhere and it's just amazing. And then you start to go up into the mountains and you go through all of these different ecosystems, climbing higher and higher rainforest sort of tropical forest um paramo which is where you have those astonishing huge bromeliad plants that stand up sort of 20 feet in the sky and take more water than they need and really sit through the roots i mean just astonishing landscapes like if you've not been to south america you would never have seen it or in my case even imagined it um and different creatures too of course and then and then of course for me perhaps the highlight was the the high andes in peru i mean they're just the classic white spiky mountains of any mountaineer's dream you know those beautiful beautiful mountains and to ride amongst those uh, for weeks was just fantastic and also very hard of course because often the roads are at 12 13 14000 feet so not extreme altitude but enough to to make you work <laughs> that's for sure gosh that is so challenging I, I watched some of your video which was beautifully put together and um at one point you know there was this huge hill and I remember the seeing the rubble and you could see this like the sunburn on your lips and I just thought <laughs> oh my gosh that's so challenging I mean in those points how can you overcome that that mental state to keep pushing is it the drive to push the message out there like I know a lot of people would probably give up and sit on the side and cry for a bit um do you know, in all honesty, for most of the trip, I just loved being there. I was so just delighted to be on my bike on the road and in the mountains. And even when it's hard, there's a sort of joy in that, right? When your body's working and um, you're feeling tired, but you, but you can keep sort of pushing through that and you're in these amazing places. Occasionally, it would just get really, really exhausting. And there was one occasion in Bolivia um, when I was in quite a remote park for four or five days, I mean, really, really pretty remote. It was deep gravel and it was washboardy and it was at altitude and there was a headwind. And I was in a rush because I was meeting my partner at a certain point in Chile in a few weeks time and I was way behind on schedule. And there was one day where I was working really, really, really hard and my average was 1.6 miles an hour speed because I was pushing the bike most of the day and it was just so demoralizing. And there was one day where I did throw the bike down and say, I can't go on any longer, this is just too much. But then you sort of look around you and you think, well, what are you gonna do then? I mean, you don't really have a lot of choice at that in that situation, do you? And you're in a high altitude desert on your own. So, so you always do pick up the bike and carry on. And as you, you just put your finger on it, at, at the back of my mind was always, well, I could quit. I mean, there's nothing stopping me from just quitting and going home. But somehow the, telling the story and getting to the end of the journey seemed to get tied up together. And that was a huge extra motivation to actually get to the end, to be able to say, I made it to Ushuaia, the town they call the ends of the earth. And I, I made it all that way on the bamboo bike, which I built myself, which of course was another part of the story. And that was fairly miraculous in itself because nobody really expected the bike to get out of Colombia, let alone make it to Ushuaia. Of course. Well, first of all, that's a fitting name where the, where the end of the world's meet. That's beautiful. But Woody, yes, tell me about Woody, P putting them together. I think you did it in Cornwall. I mean, is he still surviving? Give us an update. So Woody is alive and well and currently in my sitting room for the winter. Um, Woody is a bamboo bike that I built with help from the Bamboo Bicycle Club in London. But you're absolutely right, the bamboo came from Cornwall, from the Eden Project. So we think Woody is the UK's first homegrown bicycle. However, I had never built a bike before, um, and it's quite a challenging process, as you can imagine. I mean, fascinating and brilliant, and I loved it, but quite challenging. And so there I was sort of setting off across the Atlantic on a cargo ship to keep my climate change footprint down. And then I started cycling on this bike that I'd built that I really hadn't had a lot of time to get to know or to sort of wear in. And I had this huge question in my head, well, is this bike actually going to hold together? I mean, <laughs> and you know what? Woody was fantastic. He was the most reliable, trustworthy, uncomplaining, brilliant mechanically sound bike I've ever owned and he just went on and on and on and on and on and on and hardly any problems for the whole journey I mean 
astonishing, astonishing. So yeah, he made it um, and he is indeed alive and well and with a bit of luck will be cycling around the country with me in, a, in a, a year or so's time helping me sell books. Wonderful. It's so brave. There's so many things there that you've just decided <laughs> to, to leap into the unknown. I mean, you know, with the bike and, and traveling across the world. And what was a cargo ship like? Because I was actually looking into that whilst traveling within the Philippines um, to go to another island. What was that experience like? Do you know, Vicky, yeah, I really loved it. I mean, it, it's a very different experience um, from any kind of boat-related experience I'd ever have before. So you're very, you have to be very self-sufficient. I mean, basically, you get a room and your and your and three meals a day, and that's it. You're allowed to wander about the boat within reason. You have access um, to the deck, to the to the bridge rather so long as the cap you don't speak to the captain if he's on maneuvers and it is always a he of course and that's it really so you it's uh, it's definitely helpful to have a project and obviously i had a project and it's definitely helpful to be pretty self-resilient but if you have a project and you like being on your own and you just need some time and space and you want to reduce your carbon footprint on a long-haul flight it's a fantastic way to travel and it's so interesting i mean it's a whole world that I knew nothing about that people live on these boats for months and months and months and end. don't know why I'm calling them boats they're huge ships aren't they um, and they're sort of tracking around the ocean constantly apparently I think it's 90% of everything we own has at some point in its life come on a cargo ship from one place to another I mean there's just this huge amount of stuff in motion around the planet the whole time and it was really really interesting to kind of witness that and also to be at sea for big chunks of time out of sight of land and just to be sitting there looking for flying fish. And yeah, wonderful. I loved it. How long did it take the journey in, in total? Um, the cargo ship bit was 11 days on the way out. I went, I went from France to Cartagena, which is relatively close. Um, uh, on the way back, it took a month because I caught the cargo ship in Santiago, which obviously is much further down the Pacific coast. So we had to come all the way up the Pacific and then through the Panama Canal, which was just fantastically interesting, as you can imagine, and then across the Atlantic. So that was a whole lot longer. That, that was really a big chunk of time, but also very helpful. I mean, as you know yourself, and you've been on a big journey, and you've been in a completely different space from what we call normal life, to jump on a plane and suddenly be home is, is a heck of a shock. So actually to, to decompress and change gear for a month on the cargo ship was really really helpful and of course it gave me a chance to sort my photographs and start preparing slideshows and sort my notes out and just get my head a bit more together so yeah it was it was fantastic I really really recommend it if you get the chance yeah that sounds great a whole month wow but yeah you're exactly right I mean funny enough 10 years today was the first time I came back from mm. my trip my first big trip alone I took around um, New Zealand um, and to think I just popped on a plane and that was it you know I was seeing my friends and adjusted so quickly but really you know especially with such an, an epic adventure like yours is the chance to reflect and also you know write those notes that then later on comes into a book what was the um environmental groups like who you met and mingled with on your on your trips and your conservation projects yeah i mean again many and many and varied i mean they ranged from people that were working in what we might think of as fairly conventional conservation so obviously one of the biggest drivers of biodiversity loss is is the loss of habitat and particularly forests so i met a lot of people that were working to regenerate forests often in very innovative ways though so in northern Colombia in particular, the people that are taking down the forests are not the big corporations, as, which, is what, which is the story in Brazil, for example, usually in the Amazon, but they're small farmers who just don't have any other way of growing food to feed their families. Or they're trying to catch monkeys for the illegal uh, wildlife trade, and again, they don't have any alternative source of income. So quite a lot of the conservation charities were doing habitat preservation and habitat regeneration, but they were also working on sustainable rural development and trying to create alternative incomes for local people. One of them, Project Titi, which was a, a monkey conservation organization, um, was doing this by collecting waste plastic in an area where there was no rubbish collection, let alone any recycling, and then working with the local community on a, a process that would turn the waste plastic into chips and then those chips into fence posts 
which were really durable in a hot wet climate and then they could sell the fence posts for enough money to not need to cut down the forest so it was just a brilliant kind of joined up sort of multiple layer of conservation but all based on forestry generation at the other end of the scale i met some people um oh, that I, I tackled an issue that i'd never even thought about before i left the country and that was people that were trying to tackle gold mining um, and other forms of mining and in such brave ways. I mean, it's really, really dangerous in Colombia in particular to be an environmentalist who's trying to tackle the mining industry. I mean, that is one of the bravest things you can do. And this, there is a, a lot of recorded instances of these people being murdered while they're trying to defend their lands and their communities from the mines. And I really had no idea about how impactful some of the mining processes are on the ecosystems. Uh, so for example, mining for gold involves using mercury and um, a lot of other heavy metals that then get into the water and poison the watershed. That has a huge impact on farming as well as on the wilder parts of the ecosystem. And these people, um, often young people, were standing up against these gold mining corporations and trying to get them to leave their communities. So that was a real eye-opener and very inspiring and also very dark, of course, because you can imagine that uh, mining companies have a lot of money. Um, and in a country like Colombia, which is a fantastic place to be a tourist, you really nevertheless don't want to mess with them. Wow, they sound like heroes. Is, yeah. is this... Uh, you know one of the the topics and areas that you explore in your books and in your talks yes absolutely I'm, i've just been uh, struggling with writing it today in fact <laughs> i've got in the book a little bit further on and i've just left the amazon in ecuador where i was trying to tell the story about the impact of drilling for oil in the yasuni national park there which is a really heartbreaking story and again it's a story of big companies big money um, and local people trying to resist against all the odds and huge environmental impacts, as you can imagine, I mean, just devastating environmental impacts. And again, that was a big learning for me in the trip. Like, we need conventional habitat restoration and conventional nature conservation and national parks and so on. But we also need to think really hard about how we earn money as countries and what we as consumers do that supports the less savoury ways of earning money, let's just say, which brings us back to the beginning of the conversation, doesn't it? And the need to have low impact ways of leading high quality life that are, for example, less oil dependent or less dependent on some of the other products that are mined in these really, really dubious ways. And so would you say that would be the main message when people do listen to your talks and read your books and, and hear about your adventures, that they really have a rethink and assess areas of their life that they can change to, to make a difference? The main, main message is biodiversity, other species, nature, if you like, is not a luxury. It's our life support system. Listening back to that interview makes me want to go on an adventure. Follow Kate and the Outdoor Philosophy on socials. And that way you can keep in the loop in the future for when she will tour the UK with Woody promoting her book. Finally, I speak to actress, writer, comedian and activist Alexis Strum. She tells me about being an almost pop star, the truth about being a creative and working with a number of different mediums, her experiences of being a female comedian and what it's like being a domestic abuse survivor and what more needs to be done to help support women like her. For a good few years, probably about 10 years, I was signed to various labels and made albums, etc. Not that anyone would have heard of them, but I lived the dream. And the thing is, you don't have to have the records out in those days to be able to reap the rewards and be treated like a pop star. So it was a good time. It was a good time in music history. Now I think it's very different. I think you can have a record deal and still have to work a full-time job, I would imagine. Um, but in, in the halcyon days of the 90s in the early, no, actually, sorry, the early noughties, it was, it was great. I mean, the budgets were just huge. And um, yeah, I had a wonderful time. I definitely don't regret that. I don't sing anymore. It died. <laughs> but you're still, died. you're still performing though, which I think is wonderful on so many different yeah. mediums. I mean, you've performed on stage with the British touring Shakespeare and also on TV with BBC, Sky, Channel 4, and yeah. also a stand-up comedian actually in person, but also online as well. Yeah. What, 
um, different medium do you think interests you? How do they differ to you? So I think the different mediums, like it's really to do with time. I find that I do something for about one to two years and then I feel like I need to evolve and try something else. And it's not, um, it's not that I fail at it, but it's like I kind of get really obsessed with something and then uh, my interests kind of get peaked elsewhere. And the thing with Twitch, for example, so I started Twitch streaming just during the pandemic. That really was only available to me from that point onwards. So I kind of go with whatever's happening and sort of see if there's an interest. Um, but I, I think, you know, I like to think of myself as an artist or as a creative. Um, and I always kind of struggle with that because I've had many day jobs as well to keep going. And that's just for the, you know, to pay the mortgage, et cetera. But I do see myself as, yeah, as a creative and creatives can write a poem one day and then write a script and da, da, da. And I don't have to kind of, yeah, answer to anyone for that. Um, and I, and I like, I like that. I'm very attracted to different projects all the time. And, you know, I like to keep, I like to keep that kind of flow open. So never say never, you know, um, and there's always so many opportunities as well, I think. Um, you know, I, I, I wrote an article recently for like um, a mainstream press about being a single parent, for example, but, and that's only came about because I've become a single parent in the last few years. So these kind of opportunities present themselves and I try not to chase it and just sort of see what, you know, see what, um, go where the love is. I go where the love is really, yeah. 100% as a as a fellow creative you know it's always exploring different mediums and different different topics and issues that you're adapting to the situation and you want to have that variety you know variety is the spice of life it, it keeps it interesting it keeps it exciting and so you mentioned twitch there yeah ah, it's just a platform I just don't understand so <laughs> if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit more the thoughts yeah. of it Sure. And, I, and, and to be honest with you, if it makes you feel better, I feel the same about TikTok. I've been on there, but I just don't, it doesn't speak to me because it's very, very short form. I'm, I'm much more, I'm longer form sketch, da, 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 that sort of thing. So Twitch is, um, is basically started out as a gaming platform. Um, so people would go on and play computer games and then they have an audience and the audience might say, oh, why don't you do that? Or the person while they're gaming they're just chatting about their life and the the community interact with them and one of my actor friends um suggested that I might try it out because I was I was sort of tailing off going into lockdown and thinking oh gosh what how can I still put stuff out there and I was making a lot of sketches on my own but it's very time consuming um whereas twitch it's live and you just kind of get on with it so rather than thinking I, you know I don't really play games very much I thought well I'll do some of my comedy stuff but put it on twitch um and then sometimes they like be a two three hour show so people are getting way more bang for their buck you know much more than you'd be doing in stand-up but you're just kind of sitting in your I'm in my bedroom at the moment this is where I stream and you just kind of sit there and people come into the chat and it's like we were saying like the creative spark if you're open to it you just sort of sit back and someone might say oh god you know that song that's out at the minute I really hate it and then we'll go well let's rewrite it and do something really silly and topical or we might I do a show called the HR department where I help um comedians to find a new job even though they don't want a new job um and that's just a response to probably me losing my job and you know the kind of conversations that you have with people that are just so insincere and it just kind of spike something in my brain and I thought oh gosh that's a character um you know so it's it's just lovely it's it's been difficult because I've had to take a little bit of time out of it for the last week and I really miss that it becomes quite addictive because people are your community and I've never really had that before it's different to doing live gigs where every night it's a different crowd you know but everyone is there because they've gone into your channel so it's it's different in that respect you still get trolls the odd troll comes in and might make a comment or whatever but um I think because I'm older I don't tend to attract that very much it's the sort of the younger girls that are dare I say it very attractive <laughs> I'm kind of like I sit there and think no no one's trolling me today but it's a blessing believe me I don't miss that for one second um and it's yeah it's really been a lifeline actually and and it's sparked lots of other ideas about things that I want to write next or be in next you know 
So it's First of all, I just want to interrupt you and say, don't be so ridiculous. You're attractive. Oh, no, I d- you know up. what? I'm having a crisis at the moment. I'm having one of those awful crises where you look in the mirror and you're just like, everything's gone a bit. Lockdown has not been kind in those kind of ways. And and I think I've been spending too much time on Instagram, which is something I'm really oh, going gosh, to yeah. back on. Mm-hmm, yeah, it's it's... And the TikTok thing. So the other night I was, I was bored and I was like scrolling through and everyone is so perfect. And I know it's filters. There's no, there's like this sort of, um, what do they call that? Um, when you know something, but you can't, you can't reconcile it in your head. Like, you know, that there's filters, you know, that they've got stylists and helpers and stuff. And I'm a woman of a certain age and even I get fooled by it and kind of feel, I come away and I look in the mirror and think, oh God, you know, there's that, that moment of revelation that you don't look like the people that you're scrolling through. And it affects everyone really. Oh, of course it does. It affects everyone. It's so negative social media Mm. tapping into that, but doom scrolling as well. It's like, it's... It's, it's like an addiction you know you're in a bad kind of headspace so you decide to make yourself worse by searching oh, out yeah. the things that are going to make you feel worse or you know you're just minding your everyday business and then you realize this person's perfect let's go on their profile thousands and thousands of followers for doing nothing yeah you know? so it's yeah I completely understand that but that's why it's so it's so important to recognize like you said about having a creative and collaborative community and using social media for the for the right things and as you yeah. said with Twitch, that's what you use with your platform. Um, I recently actually saw Funny Woman on Twitch. They did their own oh, show yeah. for International Women's Day, and you've worked with Funny Woman before. Yeah, I did. I did a podcast with them, but um, I mean, I, then I kind of got really into the whole Twitch thing, and that's really that sort of took over. Also, the thing about Twitch is like you have to put the time into it because once you get a community, they expect something from you in the same way that you, I expect to turn on the TV at 7.30 and see EastEnders. I think it's on at 7.30, I don't watch it. <laughs> you know what I mean? The analogy. Um, so you kind of have to deliver. And um, as I say, like, because I've had lots of personal stuff going on, I've had to change my schedule a lot. And even for this, this interview today, you know, I didn't think I was going to make it on time, things like that. I don't like that. I don't like having to... I like to be reliable and I think that's one of the reasons that I've been semi-successful today is because people know that if they book me for something that I'm going to turn up I'm going to say the lines in the right order and I'm not going to be an asshole to anybody so it's kind of it's my reputation's actually really important to me and I hadn't realized that till now not in a vanity kind of sense but just how I'm perceived so yeah, it's been interesting. I've been having to really tackle that at the moment. But, you know, life gets in the way. Thankfully, people are very understanding with COVID and the imp- impact of that. But I want to get onto a more sort of, I, I need to get a schedule going. And it's, yeah, having a child uh, <laughs> in a pandemic and having to teach them and stuff, that just, that, that just totally knocked it on its head, really. Um, of course. So hopefully, yeah. we'll see what happens when she's back at school. Yes, hopefully we'll get more into the, the swing of it once again. But I completely understand what you mean. It's the same with Instagram influencers. You know, people want their content every single day. I've yeah. seen people unfollow someone because they're not posting regularly. You know, I've mm. seen the, the, the change of followers, which I think is shocking. When it comes to stand up, what was the first moment like when you went out and did stand up for the first time? What was that feeling like? Oh, it was exhilarating. I remember my very first gig and it was um, in in the back of a pub somewhere in London. Um, and, you know, I'd obviously been practicing my routine on my mum, which is like the, the weirdest thing to do. That was more terrifying to just do the routine for the first time in front of someone else. Um, so by the time I did it in front of a room of people, I'd already, you know, ripped off the band-aid as it were. And I used to do stand up in character so that really helps as well um i used to do it as this character called denise who's like this aussie um wannabe influencer kind of type so it was great you know to be someone that's an idiot i love being an idiot or playing an idiot um but probably if i went back to it now i would do it as myself i think it was a lack of confidence that i i thought well if i pretend to be someone else and no one likes me that's fine because that was just a character um but actually what happened was I did a few gigs where going back to this thing of they weren't my audience, you just do open spots, whatever. And I did a few gigs where people thought I just was that person. 
and they didn't get the joke and that was that was like am i just too good an actress but you know they were just they just didn't get the joke they just thought why is this really awful person going on stage and being so vile um gosh that's awful. yeah yeah. But, you know, but some of the gigs were fantastic. I really enjoyed it. And then I got pregnant and I got to the point where I was so massively pregnant that I'd get a gasp, you know, when I walked on stage. <laughs> and that, I remember the first, the last gig I did, it was just because there was, there was too many gasps in too many areas of, of the audience. And I just thought, no, I can't, I can't do this. I mean, since then, uh, I've noticed a lot of other comedians have, have been doing it whilst massively pregnant. And Amy Schumer, for example, did a great job. But then she's Amy Schumer. So it's acceptable, but yeah, it was not acceptable. And that's what I was going to ask. Thank you for leading me straight into that question. How do you feel that women are per perceived in comedy? And is it a lot more challenging for women to become a comedian? Um, I want to be, I want to be uh, inspiring, but I'm going to have to say, no, it's really hard. It's worse than you think, um, but that shouldn't stop you. There are, in the same way that there are brackets of male comedians, like, you know, the kind of typical young, white, male, studenty type, um, there are tropes of female comedians and you feel obligated to kind of squeeze yourself into one of those, you know? Um, you know, you could be like the agitator or the, the mum comic talking about, oh God, when my, you know, bladder prolapse and stuff. Or there's like different brackets and it's, yeah, it's kind of hard to go, do you know what? I just want to just see what comes out and go down that route. Also, you have the pressure of agents because those sides of people that want to put you in a mold because they're like, well, if you do this, you can get on this, etc. cetera. So um, there's, there's always going to be fewer women on the bill, of course. And you only need to look at panel shows to see that despite, despite everything and all the attempts made, it's still unequal. Um, I think if I hadn't have got pregnant, I would have still left because, um, it just felt very much like I was doing a job where nobody wanted me to be there a lot of the time. So I remember doing a gig at Colchester. I was in the Colchester finalist. I, I was a finalist in Colchester comedian of the year. And the guy that went on before me did a, uh, a rape joke about punching his girlfriend in the throat during sex. Wow. And the audience thought he was the funniest thing in the world. And they were laughing their heads off. And I'm in the wings, you know, not noticeably pregnant at that point, about to go on stage and just thinking, oh, my God, I, I, there's like an ethical thing here. I'm not sure I can actually go on. Or do I go on and do that film moment and go, hey, everyone, this is just not right. You know, we've got to like love each other. And that was hard to see because it's, it's kind of like when a lot of this cancel culture that's happened during the pandemic, you're seeing that, you know, in print where someone will say something really terrible, um, you know, like an anti-Black Lives Matter comment or something. And then other people actually post their thoughts and you're like, wow, those, those people really do exist, don't they? And it's kind of quite terrifying to just think, wow, there's like, there's some really bad people in the world. It is hard, but I think you don't have to well, if you're confident enough, you could probably navigate it and find your own niche, etc. And, and there are some great female comedians that are coming forward now. Um, but you're always going to get the opposition, as opposition, which is that women aren't funny. Um, and, and no one ever sits there and says, men aren't funny, prove it. Whereas we're always having to kind of go that little step further to, to justify it. And I think that does impact um, psychologically and even in the way that you... Uh, promote yourself on social media or that you um, put yourself forward for gigs and stuff you're always on the back foot thinking oh someone's doing you a favor because we're not really funny are we and it's like oh thank you oh thanks so much for you know letting me come on and be funny and I've seen yeah I've seen some some not nice behavior um, I know there was a whole thing recently about um, there are a few uh, stand-up comedians male who have sexually assaulted other female comedians and it's taken till now for them to be able to talk about it publicly um and yeah i could see how that's possible it's not happened to me but i can see that it fosters an environment where that becomes acceptable so you highlighted there as well uh sexual assault you know violence against women that's spoken mm -hmm. about um on stage and you've also worked with women's aid you've done a, a yeah. -a thon. what was that like 
That was great. That was really good. It, it was good to be able to harness the power of Twitch and the community that I've built up there and to, to actually do something for good. And I wanted to do it once I'd established myself. Otherwise, you know, if no one comes along, it's, it's kind of pointless really, because you want people to donate as much, much as possible. Um, and I've seen a lot of, there's, there's a lot of streamers now who will leverage um, their stream to, to raise money for charity. Yeah, it was a good way to kind of combine the two things. And it's funny because I feel like I'm getting ever more, as much as I don't want to have to get into this world because it's so upsetting. <laughs> it really is. It's such, you know, anyone that sort of tries to start becoming an activist or, you know, changing the world, you're setting yourself up for huge disappointment and sadness and, and, um, and trauma and, and yeah, disappointment and rage and all of these things. But I kind of feel like the more, the more that I do and the more that I, I get the opportunity to have a voice or, or listeners or an audience, it feels like that I have no choice but to try and raise awareness of the issues that really affect me and, and women close to me, etc. And, you know, um, having survived domestic violence, it's really important for me to, to, to try and use what I'm doing and my, my creative energy just to just kind of every so often say, oh, now I've got your attention. Can we just talk about this? Because this is really important to me. You can do something about it and you can support it if you want to. But let me just tell you some of the facts or... Um, you know, or just give you a little bit of an idea and then, and then we'll go back to having the fun part and we'll do all of that. But it is important if you're going to do anything in the public eye to, to have some influence, you know, influencing and influencers, it's kind of a bit of a negative connotation, right? But, you know, if you can use it to influence people for good, then, then I, I don't mind that kind of influencing. You know, if I'm doing it with a great big filter and half my legs chopped off so I look better or whatever that's different but um it's it's just so important to me you know okay. and I and I've done another project as well for Ava who um they approached me about working on an app for women who are in need of support um if they've been domestically abused and there's a few of us that do it it's all peer what do they call it lived experience peers sort of thing peer support um and then we give our feedback because we've experienced it and then it helps to improve what say the technical people that are designing this app they've, they've got no experience of what that feels like and so we give our input and that's massively rewarding so yeah I, I want to do more of that as much as I can it's it's just trying to sort of uh it's not it's not always that I'm too busy it's just sometimes it's quite it's quite triggering to do it and I have to go away afterwards and like have a couple of days to just decompress because when you're hearing other people's stories as well, um, that's quite, it's, it's quite a responsibility, you know? Well, it's yeah. wonderful that you're using your platform to, to help people and with your own experience as well, however draining and emotionally tough and traumatizing that is for you, that you're using your experiences to help others in, in a wider perspective, which is inspirational and empowering. And, you know, I think it is important to lay those boundaries and say, OK, you know, that's enough. I'm going to have a break now because yeah, you're raising your own daughter. You've got to think of yourself sometime now currently in this pandemic the un has said that you know domestic violence has escalated we're going to have a shadow pandemic with all all the mm -hmm. impact on individuals what advice would you give to someone who's in that situation to get the confidence to be able to leave uh, that's really hard um because leaving is the starting point of the next phase which isn't always as straightforward as you've left that person, you don't see them again. So you have to kind of accept that, that you're going to have to embrace a whole support network. And it's really isn't something you can do alone. Um, you know, there are adverts that you would get, you would get, um, so if you contacted your local domestic abuse charity, which could be, could be women's aid, or it could be um, solace or who, wherever you live, they have their own, it's done by area. So you contact them and then they will start putting all these lovely bits of the bubble around you you know the little gates around you which could be um some mental health support it could be um courses there are courses now that you can um, be put forward for which are like the freedom program 
or I think the one that I did was called something similar like that, but it, they kind of like not rehabilitate you, but they give you uh, in your groups of peers, they give you the sort of techniques to be able to recognize red flags in potential new partners, how to navigate the legal system, etc. So you would have that. Then you've got loads of resources online, forums, etc. The police, you know, you can get some legal support from rights for women, I think they're called. And there's lots of other charities. Um, so these things, you kind of build this around you and then you step out there. You know, if you just go, there are options for you. And certainly the Women's Aid um, Relta Refuge scheme is great. So they'll provide you with, well, they'll connect you with the refuge and provide you with a train ticket anywhere in the country to go to that refuge for free. Um, so there are schemes like that. And sometimes you don't have the benefit of the time to be able to think about it before you go. I mean, I've heard of, there was one lady I met who she used to save up the coins she found from her partner down the sofa until she had enough coins to be able to get like a bus fare or whatever it was. Cause you know, she'd find the one P's and the two P's and then sort of hide them somewhere because you wouldn't let her have any access to money. And then when she had saved up what she felt was enough, that was when she went. So everyone has their own timeline. Um, and also I think one in, you know, it takes on average seven attempts for a woman to leave a partner to actually be out of that relationship. So you hear a lot of the woman goes back, you know, he promises he's going to change, etc., And, and it's something that we really can't be judgmental over because unless you've been in that situation, um, it is incredibly hard to leave. By that point, you've had everything stripped away and you think it's easier for me to stay. You might, it might be that all your money's been, he's, he's taken all your money. It could be that um, you don't have any friends anymore because he's kind of discouraged that or family. And then you're left with absolutely no support at all. So you can understand why someone would stay, especially if there's children involved. Um, so yeah, that's one of the biggest biggest myths, I suppose. And, and that is something that would dissuade a person from being sympathetic, I think, towards victims of domestic abuse. And even saying the word victims, it's like you're survivors, but it's that, you know, that's why sometimes it's difficult to, yeah, sympathize with a woman in that situation. You're kind of, women are in that situation are branded idiots or not strong enough or something like that but it's so complicated but you know there's been a lot of campaigns over the pandemic as well which will help I think but there's a long way to go there's a really long way to go I think we're so far behind because of the pandemic unfortunately and even with the you know this idea of June the 21st it's all going to change and go back to normal I don't know I think I think maybe there's a lot of women out there and I hate to think this that are waiting until that date, you know, that are sat at home now um, thinking, do you know, what, I'll just hang in there like we did last year. Oh, it's okay. It'll all be over by September. And they're just kind of hanging in there thinking, well, June, that's going to change. That's going to change. Um, so please God, by then there'll be more funding in domestic abuse services as well. Um, Otherwise, it's, it's quite a bleak prospect, really. What an incredibly strong woman. Make sure to follow her on socials, Alexis Strum, so you can support her comedy work and the various charities that it will help and benefit so many women across the country. That concludes a real kick-ass episode for International Women's Month. What incredible women! Defeating obstacles and anything else that's chucked their way. I'm so delighted to have spoken to Sonia Watson, Kate Rules and Alexis Strum on this month's Let's Go Kick-Ass Today podcast. Do make sure to comment, subscribe, rate and share. I'm Vicky Carter and you keep kicking ass.